1: As you may know, a lot of media companies are struggling right now, and Slate is no exception. So more than ever, we'd appreciate your direct support for all of Slate's entertaining content and important journalism. You can support that by signing up for Slate Plus. Um, You can support the work that we do by signing up for Slate Plus. It's just $35 for your first year. You'll get ad-free podcasts and access to exclusive shows like Dana Stevens' Classic Movies Podcast Flashback. Slate Plus members won't hit a paywall on the site, so you can also enjoy all of Slate's journalism without worrying if you've reached your article limit. So if you'd like to support Slate, go to slate.com and join Slate Plus today. The following podcast contains explicit language. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Green is people! No, I... The father oh. What's in the box? You maniac!
0: You blew it up! Damn you! All to hell! Hello.
1: hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Slate Spoiler Specials. I'm Sam Adams, the senior editor at Slate, and this week I'm joined by Browbeat editor Matthew Desson. Matthew, hello. Hello. And podcast producer Daniel Schrader. Daniel. Hey, Sam. Today, we are spoiling Ryan Murphy and Ian Brennan's Netflix series, Hollywood. It's the story, based in fact, and then extremely not, of a group of up-and-coming filmmakers in 1940s Hollywood, a diverse and energetic group who set out to change the industry and the world, and eventually succeed. It's a history that becomes fantasy because, as one character puts it, movies don't just show us the world as it is. They show us the world as it can be. So we're going to get into discussing the series in its entirety, although because it's seven hours long, we're obviously not going to go through the entire plot, but because this is a spoiler special, fair warning, we are going to be talking about the ending quite extensively. But before we do that, let's just give our general impressions. Um, We'll start with you, Matthew Desim. You know, what did you think of Hollywood? Would you recommend it not? What's your takeaway from it?
0: I couldn't entirely recommend it, no. (laughs) It's, uh, It's like an interesting... Attempt to sort of recreate that world, and a lot of the details are very well done, but the writing, the plot, it just sort of at a certain point turns into fantasy in a way that I didn't really like.
2: Daniel, what about you? It was not for me, and I would never recommend it to anybody because at times I think it is utterly unwatchable. But as with most Ryan Murphy shows, as a gay man, I feel some sort of like masochistic obligation to watch, even though at times it feels like I'm watching a Thomas Kincaid painting. But... (laughs) It was fun for the gifts and for a few of the actors. Yeah.
1: If anyone listening has read what either Matthew or I have written on Slate, this will be no surprise. It was also not something that I would recommend. It's kind of an interesting project that I think has some huge conceptual flaws in it. I like particularly a lot of the older actors in it. Holland Taylor and Joe Mantello and Patty LuPone especially kind of play the old guard of this fictional studio called Ace Pictures in 1947 hollywood and i really like the kind of energy and the the gravitas they bring to it the younger cast for the most part most of whom are supposed to be like bona fide movie stars i think are really sort of you know of course it's a ryan murphy show so they're all fantastically good looking but i feel like in a really kind of bland and uninteresting way so that they're just not particularly kind of compelling or, or interesting to watch that in turn makes the rest of the story like much harder to get into so let us talk about that story a little bit. It's a big kind of ensemble drama, so it's slightly hard to summarize, but I think the easiest place to start is with, if not the central character, the one who kind of drives the plot. Is a, just getting started a Hollywood director named Raymond Ainsley, uh, played by Darren Chris, um, Ryan Murphy's old uh, glee compadre. He is, like Darren Chris himself, half Filipino director who has largely been passing for white in the industry but does not want to. And has decided he kind of wants to make his mark on Hollywood by diversifying the industry. So his first idea is to stage a comeback vehicle for Anna Mae Wong, who is essentially the first Asian American movie star, but her career was, you know, grossly curtailed by racism. Um, so he wants to bring this movie that's going to kind of bring her back. He brings this idea of the studio. The studio is just like, are you kidding me. Like, of course, we're not making a movie with a Chinese actress in the lead. So the second thing he comes up with is a movie called Peg, which is the story of Panka Entwistle, who's an aspiring actress who famously killed herself by throwing herself off a Hollywood sign, jumping to her death. And so Hollywood becomes a story of them making this movie that's first called Peg, and later then when Raymond decides to cast his African-American girlfriend, uh, Camille, played by Laura Harrier, in the role Meg, and so they're making a story about kind of Hollywood failure and how this town kind of eats people alive. But once they cast a black actress in the lead, they realize that they kind of can't tell that story because it sends the wrong message. And that's when it becomes an entirely different type of show. I think the easiest way to talk about it is going to talk about like kind of the front half of the series, which is sort of straightforward-esque um, Hollywood history, albeit with a kind of you know revisionist slant. And then the, this is kind of second half of the series from maybe like, the, you know, five, six, seven, the last few episodes, where it really kind of takes a right word turn. Matthew, you wrote a big piece for the site, essentially fact-checking the thing. And you, you know, lo- you know a lot about Hollywood history. So you wrote a lot kind of comparing to, you know, Hollywood's version of Hollywood history with what it actually was. Uh, you know, what do you make, you know, particularly this kind of first half of the series where it's they're invented characters, an invented movie studio, but it is at least, you know, showing you some kind of real things about that world of Hollywood in 1947.
0: Yeah, I mean, at the beginning, it looks like it's going to be sort of a tour of Hollywood in in the late 1940s. That 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 seems to be the show's project. It starts with this this Ace Studios. which is very clearly paramount. All the pictures that they mention are paramount. I mean, one of the things that's strangest about the show is that it it didn't feel to me like it was building towards this moment where it took a twist off into fantasy. Like, it felt like there were a few episodes where they were trying to do a kind of a soapy drama about Hollywood in the 1940s. And then at a certain point, they were like, "It, it just goes into this different thing. That early stuff, I mean, it all has the same sort of problems for me as far as it being just incredibly over the top and everyone says exactly what they're thinking and doing and why. You know, there's no subtext in it. Like, it's not interesting, but it's not crazy. And the sort of recreation of Hollywood in that era, although it's really pretty surface level, there are some details that are nice. One of the characters works at uh, Schwab's drugstore, and the interior there is just gorgeous. Perfect. Lovely. So if you want to see an interior of Schwab's, that's your show. If you want to see human beings interacting like human beings, uh, maybe not. (laughs) What are
1: you doing watching a Ryan Murphy show?
0: (laughs) Exactly. That's not the project. (laughs)
2: Like, when we're told to believe that the actress who eventually becomes Meg is, like, the most amazing actress, it's something really difficult to stomach. It's like when we had to (laughs) pretend that the Studio 60 sketches were funny.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah well Daniel, let me ask you because you are kind of our at least for the purposes of this podcast you are a resident Ryan Murphy expert the first half of the show kind of fits into this ongoing project he's had with feud with uh, people versus OJ of you know revisionist history in I say that not in the kind of judgmental sense but just as a you know legitimate historical endeavor Fosse Verdon obviously is another example of this where you take kind of established history and you just you either retell it from a different point of view or or you just kind of shift the emphasis in the character. So you have like another Marsha Clark episode of the OG series, which takes this, you know, figure who was really largely vilified at the time and um, paints her in a very compelling way as a, as a victim of, of systemic sexism. The Fosse-Verdon show, which really basically tries to put, you know, Gwen Verdon on equal footing with her kind of acknowledged master, her, you know, ex-husband, uh, Bob Fossey. So I don't know if you knew where this, this series was going as you were watching it, but I mean, did that feel kind of like it was moving along expected lines for you?
2: Yeah, I think that Ryan Murphy's beats are pretty familiar to me at this point, regardless of show. What this reminded me most of was feud. And I think my question uh, while watching this was, how much of a failure was feud that Ryan Murphy thought, you know what, I think I need to make up stuff this time. So he just like pivoted from historical fact to like actually making up whole swaths of plot in uh, ways that I thought were pretty unsuccessful because they felt so surface. There wasn't much depth to anything at all. One of the biggest problems I had with this whole show was that everybody knew everyone and was interconnected in like three different ways. The screenwriter that Darren Chris's character found the screenplay of is actually a Prostitute at the gas station with another guy who becomes an actor. And then Rock Hudson, who's a character that we should talk about, like appears as well. And it's all of these like hyper interconnected things that make it seem like there's no there there besides what we see on screen. Like, and of course, we can get into the stuff at the end, but when you start to get into the lead white guy, Jack Costello's backstory, you realize there's nothing actually there. There's no, like, meat to it. And so I think this was an entirely meatless show that really wanted to feel good about itself as opposed to create
1: interesting drama. Right. I mean, one of the things that... Is And I'm nowhere near like a Ryan Murphy completist, but I've seen, you know, a number of the series and kind of checked in on, on some of the other ones. And, and one of the things that I really, you know, make an effort to kind of give him credit for is I, I think he's just a great, in general, like a kind of a great talent scout. I, I mean, for me, if Ryan Murphy had done nothing more than make Sarah Paulson the star that she always should have been, like, die There are a lot of, you know, relatively new figures in this, particularly among the young cast. Give some, you know, more established figures and some of the older actors. But so you have David Corn Sweat, uh, who is also in Ryan Murphy's The Politician, his first Netflix series, playing this aspiring actor, Jack Costello. Jake Picking, uh, playing Rock Hudson. Samara Weaving, playing Claire Wood, who is another aspiring actress and also the daughter of the head of Ace Studios. I mentioned Laura Harrier, probably best known, I guess, as Liz from Spider-Man Homecoming, who's playing this big star and eventual Best Actress winner, Camille Washington. Uh, And then you have uh, Jeremy Pope, who's playing Archie Coleman, who is this aspiring screenwriter, kind of young black screenwriter, who is very conscious of kind of not wanting to get pigeonholed in the world of what were then called race movies, which are kind of the black or, or Asian or whatever movies. And so he has written the script about Peg Whistle, this you know white British actress killing herself um, to show that he has range, so to speak. It's a very tall order for the show because the plot requires him to cast multiple actors in roles where the character is seen by a person with you know decades of Hollywood experience. And that person immediately goes... They're a star. And it's really hard to find even one young person with that kind of instant charisma, let alone four or five of them. I mean, do you feel like they succeed? I mean, are these kind of young actors you want to see in other things or how do we kind of evaluate that aspect of the show, I guess.
0: I mean, it's a structural problem when you have people that are supposed to be good at acting that you don't have. If you have a character who is a good novelist or a good painter or whatever, you can hire somebody to do a painting. But that's always a problem with anything where a character is supposed to be very good at a skill that we can all see whether or not they're good at it.
2: Okay. Maybe Laura Harrier is a better actress than I'm giving her credit for, but I did not care for her in this role. And it was really tragic to see like Samara Weaving, who I think is a good actress, kind of halfway through her screen test be like fuck it i don't care about this and then kind of pass it off to actually the worst actress (laughs) even though like for the plot she is the better actress and i kept wondering like as people kept screening this movie who is being moved by this performance i think that ryan murphy is good at collecting a bunch of pretty people that we will forget about in a few years every few years
0: the one thing that I would say about it for sure, though, is that there's only so much you can do with the dialogue. The dialogue on the show is just sort of unbelievable. It is, it is everybody saying exactly this is what I'm thinking and why. And then you have this imagined Peg or Meg movie that you have dialogue for that. And that's, you know, on the nose in a 1940s way, but no less than the other stuff. It's just these aren't. What, what can you do with it? You know? <laughs> there's only so much you can do if that's your script.
2: The most absurd line of dialogue in the entire show for me, and it was my favorite gift that I sent to all of my friends, was when the screenwriter looks in a mirror at a bar and says, I won't be a black writer writing about some white lady. I'll just be a writer. (laughs) And it was so like subtext as text no attempt to like add nuance to this. It was just, this is what I'm writing in a way that felt like Ryan Murphy was talking to himself in that moment of this is what I'm saying about myself as an artist. And that never worked.
0: Yeah, it didn't seem like anybody understood themselves or their industry in the way that somebody might have in 1947. Like the perspective was absolutely 2020. People talked about these issues in the way they do in 2020. It didn't feel like that, that time period at all.
2: I kept thinking that if a actor uh, from the 1940s saw this, they would jump off the Hollywood sign after had, <laughs> having seen it.
1: Yeah, I mean there is, and we're gonna you know we're gonna talk about kind of the twist that the series takes later on, where it becomes kind of you know extremely like aggressively presentist, but there are all these really kind of clangy moments where people in the 1940s say at one point uh, when they're discussing whether or not they're going to try and release what they cast as the first studio movie with an African-American lead and they say, well, we want to change the conversation. There's a point where they're having a story meeting and this uh, Joe Mantello, kind of like the you know head of development for the studio, says oh, well, that's kind of a trope, isn't it? And there's one scene, this is my favorite slash thing that makes me want to like claw my ears out. Um, there's a point where an editor whose career goes back to the silent era uses the word creatives. <laughs> I don't feel like anyone should be using that word in the year 2020, let alone 1947. You can make an argument, and I, I try to kind of give them the benefit of the doubt that this is... You know they're showing kind of deliberately nodding to the way that it's departing from history, but it grates on my ear in <laughs> in a certain way. I mean, I didn't want to single out kind of among the uncast. I mean, Daniel, you mentioned Samara Weaving, who I think is established enough that you can't really kind of call a discovery at this point. Um, she's had a you know starring role in a kind of you know what's already a cult movie called Ready or Not a couple of years ago. She is great at it, and I think uh, Jeremy Pope, who plays Archie Coleman, the screenwriter. Basically, his kind of first screen thing that he's done, he's was in one movie from a couple of years ago that I've never even heard of before. Um, so he is, I feel, I feel like a bonafide discovery. He has kind of, I feel kind of like real presence and magnetism. Like he's someone I would want to see in something else again. Of course, he's not playing an actor.
0: <laughs> they they cast him as in the one role where uh, he can't use those acting things to make the rest of it more credible.
1: You imagine in you know, the uh, series that really kind of seems to be. In a way, kind of Ryan Murphy and, I guess, Ian Brennan kind of talking to themselves about how important, like, you know, the creatives and the the writers and directors are. So the fact that, like, they cast, you know, some of the most magnetic, interesting actors as the writer and director in the story is, if not intentional, at least maybe um, something they could talk to their therapists about. (laughs) One of the ways that this story is kind of aggressively revisionist, really kind of, you know, revealing something that would not have been common knowledge at the time is a subplot that starts with Jack Castell, this aspiring actor, finding work at a gas station uh, run by Dylan McDermott, who is this sort of former actor who has basically become uh, a pimp in his middle age. This gas station does, in fact, pump gas. But more importantly, it is a front for a large-scale prostitution ring. Basically, I think, if not exclusively male prostitutes, most of the ones we see are male, and they service both men and women. So that kind of introduces this whole very persistent subplot of this kind of sexual undercurrent of Hollywood in 1947 just being much more complicated than the sort of certainly than the image of the town that Hollywood would have presented itself at the time. So you have, as you mentioned, Rock Hudson, who is then kind of an aspiring actor, was obviously gay, although in real life was closeted almost until his death in 1985. It wasn't until he had to go public with having HIV that his homosexuality kind of became public, although it was, you know, an open secret probably for decades. Archie Coleman, the screenwriter, uh, becomes his, his sort of long-term boyfriend. This character played by Jim Parsons called Henry Wilson is based on a real figure who becomes Rock Hudson's agent and requires Rock, as he does most of his male clients, to sleep with him in order to advance his career. So it's this whole kind of thing that runs through the series. And if I can say it's that
0: plotline that made me sort of do a double take when it went off the rails off off the timeline because for the most part that's based on two, you know, real memoirs which are Scotty Bowers who was a gas station attendant turned pimp turned prostitute or whatever but uh, was responsible for making those kind of assignations out of a out of a gas station in Hollywood. He wrote a memoir about it, and his portrait of that time period in Hollywood is is kind of revisionist history that you would read and think, hey, this could make a great Ryan Murphy show. And the way that the show begins, it's like, okay, that's it. It's going to sort of follow this line. The point of this show is going to be, wow, there was a lot of crazy stuff going on back then that people don't know about. And the same thing is true with Henry Wilson and Rock Hudson's thing. That was Wilson was a real guy. He really was Rock's agent. He was responsible for all of those kind of 50s beefcake actors, Tab Hunter, you know, whatever. He gave those people his names and was not a very good guy. And so I thought, okay, that's the show. But then it turns out that's not the project at all. Really, that's that's just the jumping off point.
2: I mean, you saying it now, that sounds like such a better show. And honestly, that's the problem with, I think, my like overarching theory of Ryan Murphy shows is that they're great to start, but then they fall apart once he gets an idea about what he's making. If he just hit start and then walked away and let other people keep making it, it would be a lot better, I think. The Jim Parsons role was, I think, my favorite part of the show, just in terms of his pure absurd commitment to the role. He's like, (laughs) fuck it. I have big bang money now. I can do whatever I want. And so he's just like dancing around with like scarves and being really bitchy and uh, an awful person. Like he is a Machiavellian gay, but in a way that like I loved and really enjoyed getting to watch, like when he has the monologue about his like lover who died at 19 and then immediately pivots into like, okay, Rock, now we're going to have sex again with these two guys. It was really like, it was gross, but it was fun in like a, this is the type of like lurid Hollywood stuff I wanted to watch when I was watching this, as opposed to what shakes out at near the end, which we need to get into. And I think also speaks to maybe some of the things Ryan Murphy might be trying to work on himself.
1: One of my one of my kind of issues with the show is that, you know, Henry Wilson is one of the people, Anna Mae Wong, uh, Rock Hudson, I mean, a number, Hattie McDaniel, who appears briefly in the stories uh, later on, played by Queen Latifah. I mean, these are all people with like amazing lives and amazing stories, and they really, by and large, you know, have not been told, certainly in kind of, you know, fictional, like, biopic form. The idea of just sort of, like, making up these, like, young, attractive people who are just go-getters and, like, change the system because they really wanted to do it real bad. It's just, like, why not tell, like, the real stories that are interesting and largely untold? I mean, there's never been an Anime Wong movie. There's never been a Hattie McDaniel movie. Like, why not make that instead? The thing about Jim Parsons' performance,
0: I would say, is that he, he seemed to be the one person who sort of knew how the show could work. You know, like he knows what, what kind of show he's on and how to, like, it, it gets just very earnest in ways that don't work later on. The more it gets into, didn't work for me anyway.
1: We'll move into the kind of the second half of the story now. I think the, the pivotal point for this, kind of the inciting incident for the, the second half, is a visit to Ace Studios by Eleanor Roosevelt.
2: Real quick, this is my favorite moment. So they're trying to decide whether or not they should release Meg because it's starring a black woman and Patti LuPone, who is currently the head of the studio because her husband, played by Rob Reiner, is currently in a coma. And so she is talking to Eleanor Roosevelt at lunch and saying, oh, I feel so awful because we should give it to this one actress, but she's black. And she's the better actress, but we should give it like we're going to give it to the white girl. And there's just this zoom in on Eleanor Roosevelt's face in that moment. That is just literally the moment that these white women discovered intersectional feminism.
1: Eleanor Roosevelt says to her, and I want to read this quote because it's truly astonishing. Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, and this is in 1947, two years after the end of World War II, says, I used to believe that good government could change the world. I don't know that I believe that anymore. However what you do you fantastic hollywood people what you do can change the world that is just the most like mind-blowingly self-serving thing for a hollywood production that literally called hollywood to say essentially about itself like you know what really matters is us you talked about making the, the subtext text daniel and this is i mean this is the show just coming right out and saying it like What we do is really important. This is a show about how important we are. So it is, I guess, give them credit for owning up to it. But it is just, you're going to have to pick your job after the floor, after that.
0: Yeah, it was just an astonishing moment. (laughs) (laughs) In a show full of astonishing moments.
2: Well, so this is where the turn happens, as you were saying, where like the astonishing moments start coming one after another. And it turns out that it's just like the Social Justice Warrior Brigade of 1947. Out to save the film industry, Rob Reiner wakes up and he's like, "Wait, we can't do this movie." After like some of the characters had um, gotten burning crosses placed in their yards, even though no actual like violence or anything fell upon them, it was this was just like something for the show to kind of signpost for us that like, this is happening for them. So they didn't have to like get into any of that. Rob Reiner wakes up. He's like, no, we can't do this anymore. Tries to cancel everything. Uh, They end up like wanting to burn the movie as opposed to putting it out. So as not to lose all of the money that they are possibly losing on all of the other movies that were in production or were airing, but are now pulled because of this race picture that they're trying to make. And so, everything goes in the fire and then Rob Reiner is having dinner with Patti Lupone at their house and they kind of have a discussion where Patty's like, you know what? I'm done taking this anymore. I had a taste of power and I'm not going back to not having it anymore. So make me a partner. And he just says, well, okay. And agrees to, and then we're like, Oh wow. Rob Reiner is a good guy. He's like, Going to be a savior along with everybody else. This is great, and then he dies that night in his sleep, and so it's like he gets this savior moment, and then he gets to die, and then they still burn the movie <laughs> and, and everything. we still have to
0: watch the show. <laughs> yeah, we
2: still exactly like
1: Rob Reiner got out of it. and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: I mean, there's this consistent theme in the second half of the show. And Matthew, in, in your piece, you kind of detailed, like, all the milestones that end up happening in the story. And then when they actually happened in real life, you know, when was the first, like, interracial kiss in a Hollywood movie? Um, when was the first you know, woman of color to win best actress. I think the most staggering of them is the first black person to win best original screenplay, which is a milestone that happened in the long distant past of 2018, when Jordan Peele won for Get Out. Um, That happens in 1947 in this movie, you know, a mere, you know, 65 years ahead of schedule. But as you're saying, Daniel, I mean, it's this consistent thing in the story where these barriers fall in this story, not because, you know, kind of people sacrifice and bleed and build up structures that can change the way the world works, but just because they kind of ask a lot. They put their foot down. You know, Patty LuPone says, I really want to be, you know, ahead head of the studio with you. And Rob Reiner says, good point. That's fair. OK. Darren Chris says, look, I'm not making this movie with a white lead, I'm only going to make it if we change the title and my black girlfriend plays the lead. And the studio goes, okay, sure, you're right. That just kind of happens again and again. And there is, you know, a wish fulfillment aspect to it that I think is kind of not to be dismissed. I mean, I've been thinking about this for weeks and then our former Slate colleague Aisha Harris wrote something about it in the New York Times. This week, and I'll just quote this, There is something to be said for the show's fluffy confection of ahistoricism when it's not indulging in myths of racial reconciliation in movies as changemakers. The happy resolutions conjured up by message films from the Hollywood era almost always benefited straight white people and no one else. Here is a fantasy set in the past where women, people of color, and queer characters ultimately win, too. A part of me can't ignore what it feels like to see this technicolor spectacle populated by these faces and experiences, to see the 1940s depicted through a 2020 lens browner, less sexually repressed, more women calling the shots. You know, I think that that is definitely powerful, and I think that is clearly what Ryan Murphy and Ian Brennan and all the other people who made this show, that's their vision. Obviously, this isn't what happened, but like, what if it had? I think I saw someone describe it on on Twitter as like a what if story where the premise is like, what if people were fundamentally decent? (laughs) Um, You know, it's like, great. I mean, I wouldn't live to live in that world, you know, that it's more like kind of just and equitable. And if people point out that your industry is kind of, you know, structurally racist and sexist and homophobic, you go... Oh, yeah, I guess it is. You put out this movie that's like the first, you know, Hollywood movie with an interracial romance and a black female lead. And you put it in front of audiences and they go to it and they go, you know what? I love that. I'm going to tell my friends to go see it. And then they go see it. And then it's a big box office hit. And then it wins Best Picture and everything else. And it's like, it feels like in this movie, like people want to be good and they just need an excuse to do it. One of the... uh, kind of more minor historical things in it, but it, it's significant is um, there's this whole, the whole reason why they the, the studio says they kind of can't make Meg in the first place instead of Peg is because Southern movie theaters are not going to play a movie theater with a mixed race cast. Because they're going to boycott it, that's, that's just way too much of their business. The studio can't risk it. Not only are they not going to play Meg, but they will pull all of A-Studio's A's other movies if they even try to release it. That's why they end up wanting to burn the negative. So... Dick Samuels, who's this studio executive played by Joe Mantello, to counter this. He invents what he decides to call the wide release, which is a a studio technique that was not actually implemented until 1975 um, and kind of really caught on with, with Jaws in 76. Not a vector for social change, the release. The release. <laughs> no, not then, <laughs> not ever. Um, But yeah, no, but it, the idea is if you just kind of flood the zone, if you like change the conversation and put this thing, I think in the, they say in like 650 theaters or something like that, just an unimaginable, unimaginable number, 1947, um, people will feel like they have to go see it there's these newsreel clips of like, you know, sort of white women coming out of the theater and being like, I really identified with the character. I felt like she was me. I felt like she was going through what I was going through. It's just like, people just just want to see this. And, and it's this very nice, but again, also very, you know, self-serving thing where like mass entertainment is kind of the cure-all for things and that this is going on Netflix as well, which is, which is kind of made this like part of its brand. It's like really just feels very like kind of, you know, throwing out your shoulder to pack yourself on the back.
0: Well, and it's, it's so divorced from like the idea of of white supremacy as a kind of material system that people benefit from, you know, I mean, the thing, the thing about it that is strange to me is it's not beyond the realm of possibility that one studio could have been, could have made one film with one interracial kiss in 1947, but it's the idea that that film would then convince all of America to stop being racist. And, uh, Which is what I mean. There's something in there about how when the movie first comes out, there are protests, and then the protests. A newsreel guy cheerfully says that protests just melted away when the movie was released, and it's like yeah. The
1: the line in the newsreel is is verbatim: "Racial protests of every kind simply melted away as audiences rushed out to see a new kind of motion picture." That didn't happen in like you know a couple years ago when Black Panther came out. Like it just doesn't doesn't work that way.
2: I like the idea of that this gives a um a meaningful look into like what if Hollywood were different um and what if things were nicer and happier for people of color and queer people but as a gay man my problem with that is that there's no substance to this there there's no meaning behind it and so any of this storytelling for marginalized groups doesn't have any weight for me if it doesn't have any like sense of depth for itself. It's really tough to have watched this ever after getting to watch Watchmen. Uncomparable projects, but at the same time like we have Damon Lindelof making an amazing analysis of race in America and then we have Ryan Murphy making Hollywood.
0: I think Sam you wrote about this too, but it's one of those things where it's like if it was that simple why didn't someone do this in 1947? You know, it just makes it seem like there was nothing on the other side there. That entire institution is just just a paper tiger.
1: Right. There's a moment in this story where Camille Washington, who's the actress, um, goes to visit Hattie McDaniel, who is in real life the first person of color to win an, an acting Oscar. And Hattie McDaniel says, Well, you know, tells her this whole story, which is not entirely true, but the idea is basically sound saying, Well, you know, when I was nominated for an Oscar. You know, the hotel was segregated and they wouldn't let me in the door. You know, security, like, turned me away. You know, and it was only when um, the word kind of got out that I had actually won that they, like, snuck me in the back right beforehand so I could go up and accept it. Patty says to Camille, okay, if that happens, like, don't make the mistake I made, basically. Like, it happens to you. Like, don't let them do that. And so sure enough, Camille is nominated for an Oscar. She goes to the ceremony and security at the door tries to turn her away. And she just goes, no. Like, if you don't let me in, I'll scream. And they kind of look uncomfortable and then they kind of go, sheepshaking, like, oh, okay, I'll just let you in. And it, it's basically, it is just like fantasy. Like, what if these people were decent and knew, and what if those security guards knew on some level that they were doing the wrong thing um, and they just had to be called out on it and they would kind of give in to that sense of shame. But it inadvertently also conveys this idea that like, well, why didn't Hattie McDaniel do that? Like, it's, I guess it's her fault for not like standing up for herself. And it just is no, I feel like there's no understanding of like, you know, Hattie McDaniel went through like shit that like none of us can imagine. Now she just like, you know, broke down these barriers, like, you know, went through these like trials, just like, you know, sweated blood, gave so much to, you know, to play these roles that in, now a lot of them look like pretty horrific. These kind of, you know, comic, you know, domestics in, you know, movies in the 30s and 40s. And, and some of the stuff is like painful to watch, but it was like, it was, that stuff was really like hard fought and, and difficult to achieve. And to sort of insinuate, even by accident, that she if she had like just tried a little harder, she could have done better is just, that makes me insane. It's kind of
0: interesting if you look at the way that she tells that story and what actually happened with Hattie McDaniels, because it does sort of, stand in for the way that Murphy's kind of changed the way this stuff seems to actually have worked. Because what what really happened with Hattie McDaniels at that Academy Award ceremony is the Ambassador Hotel was segregated, but there was no one at the door who was like, oh no, Hattie McDaniels is, I mean, they knew Hattie McDaniels was nominated for this thing. Selznick arranged with the hotel for her to be allowed into the ballroom. That was all set up in advance. She was given a separate table away from her white co-stars or whatever. There was a compromise, but all of that was done that was out of Hattie McDaniel's hand. And there was no moment where they were like, oh, she won, she has to come in because she's just so good at acting. Like this movie in Hollywood is just so good that it erases racism. It was all stage managed event. That was never a possibility because it was all been arranged you know, well in advance.
1: This is Hollywood. I mean, they they know the optics.
0: Yeah, there isn't the moment where the one person can say, yes, now this changes and and it just does. I mean, it, it, that, that system had been arranged to make sure that, Hattie McDaniels was not presented with that moment.
1: So I want to circle back, like we, you know, we mentioned Rock Hudson a little bit before, and I feel like he is one of the the truly, you know, kind of fascinating and complex characters in this story. Albeit, I I don't, uh, he kind of really, um, I I don't feel like he really like entirely gets his due in this, but he's such like an interesting figure. Um, There's a a great sort of, you know, uh, seminal, a work of new queer cinema called rock hudson's home movies by mark Rappaport. um it's on amazon prime now possibly among other places and that sort of has basically has it's kind of a textual reading of these clips from all these you know like dorstay and douglas sirk movies that rock hudson made with an actor playing Rock hudson kind of narrating over them if you want to kind of have your mind blown for like 15 minutes i suggest going and looking through the reviews of that on amazon prime because it's it has like a one and a half star rating um, Like 70% of the reviews are people I'm like, these are not Rod Hudson home movies. How dare you? <laughs> and then there, there was one person who called it homophobic. And then there was another person who said, like, well, look, Rod Hudson may well have been gay. Um, but, <laughs> and I'm just like, why? I, I feel like this is settled law at this point. He is one of those characters who I think. um, I mean, it is genuinely, you know, like troublesome to a modern sensibility because he had his entire career as a closeted man. And I feel like it's really difficult to wrestle with that in 2020 and to kind of make excuses for that. But I mean, what do we make of like how he's portrayed in this?
2: Uh, I mean, when he first showed up at Dreamland, which is the gas station, I didn't know who the character was going to be. I was like, oh, this is some idiot from Iowa. I uh, texted Ingu actually and said, is this P. Buttigieg? um and then it, it and then of course it turned out to be rock hudson and so i got uh, a laugh at that but his whole story through this has been interesting because it is kind of like the closeted gay man from the country coming into the big city figuring out like what form of like sexuality is safe for him and not and he ends up with Henry Wilson, who sexually abuses him for a number of years during their professional relationship. That happened in real life. And we see that play out at times like at George Cukor's party. George Cukor is a real person. Matt, you wrote about him in your piece going through the fact and fiction of this show. So if anyone wants to know about that, check there. In the show, that's the moment where like rock hudson realizes i want to have a boyfriend and so he like puts down his claim on his boyfriend archie who's the screenwriter and it's just a very weird depiction of closeted homosexuality at least from my understanding of it at that time because yeah there were like these types of parties that happened i, I think they're still like modern versions of this but the whole story of rock hudson as this like heartthrob who is closeted and is sexually abused really ends on one of the most disappointing notes I think of the whole series for me as we unpack the ending I think we should touch on him because of how his and Jim Parsons character Henry Wilson's like relationship kind of plays out in the end in ways that made me really uncomfortable
1: Ryan Murphy said one of his motivations for this was I wanted to give you know happy endings to people who didn't have them So Anna Mae Wong died on the eve of what could have been her comeback vehicle. She gets to be in Meg and she wins a Best Supporting Actress uh, Oscar. But, you know, Rock Hudson's happy ending is that, like, his boyfriend thanks him from the stage at the Oscars. And then it's kind of, like, left out, well, because he's not a movie star in 1947. And it's like, like, does that happen at all? Because he's still, like, just a terrible actor who, and this is based on fact, I mean, you know, can't get through a one line appearance without needing like 48 takes. But that seems like a very weird, like his happy ending is he has a boyfriend.
2: Yeah. I got to say my big question about this whole series is do I need to watch a Rock Hudson movie?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. I've I mean, just, not because never of the have. series, but yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay. Yeah. watch Magnificent Obsession or, um, yeah, he's great. He's, uh, he's, he's an actor who can be very well used, I guess I would say. Uh, he's not, um, I don't think anybody's going to say he's a great actor, but um, there are some things he did very, very well.
2: Yeah, I think that's probably something you would say about a lot of the actors of that time: is (laughs) they were of use. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Cool. Well, I will check acting showcases. Or no, they're definitely (laughs) worth checking. And Matthew, like as our kind of you know Hollywood historian expert on this, like what do you think of? I mean, Rock Hudson specifically, but you know, the way any of the other historical figures are portrayed in this.
0: I mean, I think that they deal with repression and social pressure and all of that stuff all in much more interesting ways than Hollywood did. You know, like, it's very interesting to me. I really do enjoy seeing people wrestling with that kind of like what they can do in the system in which they're living. I find that to be very fascinating. There's a way in which this could have been that, but it really wasn't.
1: Maybe this is just intentional and, you know, snake swallowing its own tail-ish, but there is something so very non-italic Hollywood about italic Hollywood's um way of resolving these questions. I mean it's just like it all comes down to like individuals making choices and like taking the stand and standing up for themselves. And that's just like the very rarely like how real change happens. Like we love to, you know, enshrine the story of like Rosa Parks sitting down on the bus, but we don't like to say like that Rosa Parks was like an activist who was part of an organization who knew exactly what she was doing that was literally provoking this boycott. She wasn't just like a woman who made a decision one day. Um, But we don't like the story of like organized social change because that sort of goes against our whole idea of American individualism or something.
0: Part of it is that like, as long as you believe that all you have to do to throw over these systems is have one person sit down on the bus or one person make one movie or whatever, then to the extent the system still exists, it's just, yeah, well... You know, if they wanted this to change, they would have changed it by now.
2: Yeah, I'm just tired of Ryan Murphy's savior complex. One other thing before we like wrap up the whole story is the ending with Henry Wilson and Rock Hudson, which to me was kind of a betrayal of like the type of progressiveness that this show wants to nod toward, I feel, because Henry Wilson spent the whole show sexually abusing Rock Hudson. And then in the end, he's basically like, you know what, I'm sorry. I feel so bad that I did this to you. Can you forgive me? I messed up, blah, 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 blah. And Rock Hudson just forgives him and everything's fine. It feels like there's this lack of either understanding of the trauma that was caused or a lack of willingness to acknowledge that there was trauma in that experience. And this is not the series equipped to handle trauma like that, of course. I don't know if any Ryan Murphy series ever is, but when you create something like this that is so toxic and to then just wash it away with, I'm sorry, oh, it's okay, really
1: sat wrong with me. So just to kind of bring our discussion of of the plot to the close, there's a point Meg finally gets made. It's the, going to be this big, you know, groundbreaking, you know, history-making, taboo-shattering movie. You know, Avis Amberg, this uh, Patty LuPone, the temporary studio head, has convinced her husband after he gets out of his coma to get behind it. Everything's going fine. He has a heart attack and dies. All of a sudden, you know, this is the, the all-is-lost moment. The new head of the studio, who are just complete money men... They decide that they'd need the Southern theater owners back on their side. The best way they do that is to completely destroy Meg. They burn the only copy of the film. That's it. It's all over. That's all she wrote. But then it turns out that the editor from the silent era, who knows the word creatives, kept a dupe of the negative in his car trunk because he worked on the wizard of Oz. And he remembered when they tried to burn that, I didn't want to let it happen to this movie. So hooray, the movie's back somehow. The, they don't have the exact same problem releasing that copy of it that they would have the copy that they previously burned so yes, they put the movie out, the market speaks, the market says this is what we want, the Oscars say well if the market wants it, we want it too everybody wins Oscars hooray, racism is over, the end <laughs> so. well, the end
2: except that then we find out a year later that they start production on Love, Simon <laughs>
0: You were asking earlier what would become of Rock Hudson in this timeline, and that seems to be it. At the end, they begin like a movie about the service station, and so apparently, yeah, it happens,
2: becomes a movie becomes... about Hollywood. Yeah. the series we just watched.
1: Yeah. One of the extraordinary things that yeah we should mention this is it jumps forward a year. Uh, we find out that uh, Dick Samuel's the character played by Joe Mantello has died, and we find out that uh, Dylan McDermott's character, the the pimp, who's been um, you know sort of setting it up for closeted. Hollywood actors and directors to have, you know, secret trysts with male prostitutes um, is shutting down his business because since one screener got up on stage and thanked his boyfriend at the Oscars, gay men are no longer ashamed of their sexuality. And that being the only reason they would ever go visit sex workers, his business is bottomed out and he um, is just getting out of it. That's sort of the, the cherry on the Sunday there. I mean, the idea that like shame is over because one thing happened at the Oscars and then instead of the end, it actually says like the beginning? Question mark. Well, shame is
2: over, and literally every single person gets a happy ending, even the dead people. Like Dylan McDermott ends up with Holland Taylor, which that is a great straight version of the Holland Taylor Sarah Paulson relationship. <laughs> Samara Weaving ends up with David Corin Sweat, who plays Jack Costello, who earlier in the series had a wife and got her pregnant but it turns out that she was pregnant with this other guy who she gets to be happy with so they're off on their own even when Joe Mantello dies like he died with a man still loving him that he had met a few years a few like months before his death and got to live openly gay as well so like every single person gets this tight little bow on their story that like there is no sadness in Hollywood there's only happiness everything works out as it should in the like to me the most offensive way possible is someone who is like knows any story about hollywood ever like i don't know i kept wanting to see the bojack horseman
1: treatment of this or something (laughs) (laughs) oh my god i would love the bojack treatment of this story so much
0: well that ends the minute that the production code authority finds out that this movie's being made that's (laughs) it's a very short series
1: right truly because we've been pretty down on it kind of as a group i mean is there an aspect of this like a you know storyline a performance or something that you actually do like or would recommend or should we just go watch tiger king again
0: (laughs) you know the thing that it reminded me of after it took its turn was something like inglorious bastards or whatever you know like i don't think there's something inherently wrong with being like but what if it all went you know what if the slot machine came out sevens or whatever at this one point what what happens then but It just didn't work. Everything was just so written in 2020 language. Everyone understood themselves in 2020 language. So no, I guess is my answer. No, there's nothing I'd really recommend about it. (laughs) Except for, again, the Schwab's Drugstore set, exquisite.
2: Yeah, I think for me, the only way that I could imagine recommending it is from a camp approach where you just pluck out things like Jim Parsons, Mira Sorvino, Paget Brewster as these just like random characters. Paget Brewster played Tallulah Bankhead at one point as just these like random performances. Maybe untethered from the rest of the piece, but on their own are these like beautiful artifacts.
1: Some of those performances are so kind of bad and like badly cast that they do they do sort of have a certain like camp value. And then I do think like you, Holland Taylor and Patty Lupone. And- you know, Joe Matteller are actually like really great, but there's not enough of them to really justify sitting through seven hours of it. If this thing possibly drives people to watch, you know, Rock Hudson movies or learn more about Hollywood in 1947 or certainly to kind of discover anime Wong, that's fantastic. I
2: just worry that they'll stop here.
0: Exactly. If this is like the your introduction to a bunch of stuff, you then look into Fantastic, But if this is your understanding of what Hollywood was like in the 1940s, no, it wasn't like God that. help us all.
1: <laughs> I will just say to our listeners that if you are interested enough in this show to listen to us talk about it for almost an hour, please go ahead and watch Anime Wong movies. Piccadilly is, is streaming online now. Watch some, you know, Rock Hudson movies. Those are great and super enjoyable. And I think you'll get a lot out of them. And I hope that you do. Okay, that's our show. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler special podcast feed. And if you like the show, please rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you got your podcasts. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil, or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Rosemary Belson. For Matthew Dessen and Daniel Schrader, I'm Sam Adams. Thank you for listening.